Amen. Hey, this morning we are going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, 1 through 5. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. If you don't own one, we'd love for that to be a gift from us to you. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, at the front of that you can find a table of contents that's going to let you know how to locate the different books of the Bible. And as we make our way through, the large numbers are chapters and the small numbers are verses. This morning we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 through 5. Hey, let's read this passage together and then we'll walk through. Paul writes and he says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you in our labor would be in vain. Let me pray for us once more. Father, we come into your word this morning recognizing uh, that we are in the midst of a spiritual struggle that even in this place that the tempter, the enemy, Satan, Lucifer, the deceiver, the accuser, the adversary to your kingdom is trying to be at work to lead us astray, to pull us into distraction, to cause us to focus on our sin instead of our Savior. He longs to keep us stumbling and groping in darkness instead of coming into the light. God, this morning I pray that your Holy Spirit would fall upon us mightily, that you would embody your word, that you would lead us in this place in worship of you, that our minds and our hearts would focus our intention, our intensity on you. God, would you see us set free in this place? God, would you see us as we encounter sin be reminded of your sacrifice instead of our shame? God, would you lead us in paths of righteousness for your namesake? God, we cry out that you would see, that we would see in this place your move, restore families, restore broken hearts. God, that you would bind up the wounded, that you would be near to those who are weary. God, that you would be with those who are sick, Would you would be with those who are forlorn, those who are incredibly disinterested and don't even know why they're in this place, that today they would have an encounter with your spirit. God, we submit this time to you. We ask for you to move in our presence, in our midst. And God, we ask especially that you be with those who are so far from you, God, that they have never cried out to you for salvation, that today would be the day of their salvation, that you would awaken their hearts, that you would open their eyes, that you would enliven them to respond to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. God, our hearts break with those whose hearts are breaking. We mourn with those who mourn. This morning, as we sit here in ease and in comfort, a world away from us, men and women are fleeing for their lives. God, we pray for those Christians living in Ukraine, those Christians living in Russia, who uh, some are seeking to survive, others are seeking to change what's going on. God, that you be near to them. We pray for the aid workers. We pray for all those who have authority to make decisions. God, we long to see your justice rule and reign on this earth. When we find ourselves witnessing conflict like this, I recognize personally that all I can do is say, come, Lord Jesus. We want to see an end to war. We want to see an end to suffering. We want to see an end to sickness, to disease. 
We want to see an end to all these things. We recognize that all that can only ever happen in the return of Jesus Christ. That one day you will rip open the sky. That your son, he will descend bodily and he will stand before us. And in line with Philippians 2, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God, I pray that our lives will be lived in a posture that declares his sovereignty. That our lives will be lived in a posture that declares he is Lord of our lives. So even as we pray for them, we pray for ourselves. And we are aware that your mighty hand can do all things. God, would you be with us in this time? Would you bless our study and draw our hearts to be aligned with your spirit? In Christ's name, amen, amen. A couple of weeks ago during spring break, Valerie and I decided to go on a trip. So we go out to southern Utah, which is gorgeous. If you've not been, I heartily recommend uh, it to you. So we're out there. Trip's great. We're coming home. We get to the airport, and we're sitting at our gate, and, and we're there plenty early because I've already missed flights with Justin Milton. But, and so we're there, and we're plenty early, and we're waiting, and all of a sudden the time begins to shift on our flight, and we're thinking, man, what in the world's going on? And it just begins to shift, and it begins to shift, and it's later and later, and this guy comes over who is, there's always this guy on your flight, like somehow he knows mechanically what's going on with the plane, and like he's got a close relationship with a pilot. So he comes over just in a huff and sits down beside us. He says, there's a part broken. They're not sure if they're going to fix it. If they fix it, it's going to take a couple hours. If they don't fix it, we can leave soon. <laughs> and I'm thinking, ah, palm sweating, feet sweating, pit sweating. Like, man, like, what is this part? How do you know this? Why would they tell? I'm like, look at my boarding pass. Like, should not be informed of broken parts on plane. Like, my boarding pass says this. What is his said that clues him in? So then they, they make the call, we're boarding now. So I'm like, oh, they've not fixed it. They've not fixed it. They've decided that we're okay. I saw the pilot beforehand crying and talking to somebody on his phone saying, why won't you believe me? Like, he's not in the state of mind to fly. Fix the part, buddy. So we get on the plane, of course. We're lemmings. We just want to go home. So we get on the plane, and we're flying, and all this time I'm thinking, it's the wing. They didn't fix the wing. It's the engine. It's the air. It's the seat belts. Y'all, it turned out to be the Wi-Fi. It was the worst thing possible. <laughs> like, no in-flight entertainment for three hours. What in the world are you to do? The lights are off. You can't do anything. You just sit there and do this. Please don't die. Please don't die. Please don't die. So the whole time I'm, I'm flying, I'm recognizing that this pilot, that this crew, that the ground crew, that American Airlines cares nothing for me. Don't they know I'm suffering? They've told me there's a problem, but they've not told me what it is. They care nothing for me. There is this tendency when we are suffering, and, and whether it's, it's you know, this, you're flying and you don't have Wi-Fi, which I'll pray for you, that's a suffering or if it's something real and significant, there's this question that becomes in our mind, does anyone actually care for my suffering? Would someone be moved if they knew what it was that I was going through? Would they bring their heart in line with my heart? Would they care? And if they cared, what would they do? The Thessalonians, a good three or four weeks away round trip from Paul, and they're going through these afflictions, and what we see in 3, 1 through 5 
is that he does, in fact, care. His heart is moved towards them. Do you remember what we read just a moment ago in verses 1 and 5? He says, when we could bear it no longer, verse 1. Verse 5, when I could bear it no longer. So Paul is there, and he's removed, and he knows he can't go back. 2.18 told us that the Satan was hindering him. He knows, likely, if he goes back, he's going to be arrested. It's going to be bad news for people there because he is persona non grata for the local government in Thessalonica. He can't go back. And he's wrestling with this. He's not sure what to do. And at some point, he's so overcome with this thought that he says, listen, I can't go back, but one of us has to. Now, you read this, and and the thought becomes immediately, is Paul just an extrovert? Is he afraid to be alone in his feelings? And that's not what he's talking about. Paul recognizes that if just one of them goes back, that he's going to endure hardship, then he's going to have a potential question as to whether or not it's safe for Timothy to travel on the road by himself. But he recognizes in that decision and being willing to step into that sacrifice that for the benefit of the Thessalonians, they must be willing to suffer, that they must be willing to take on hardship. And we come into this understanding that because as a Christian, suffering is to be ours. Because suffering is to be ours, we must allow ourselves to be cared for and to care for others. And we see this theme over and over again in Scripture. Because suffering is to be ours, we must allow ourselves to be cared for and to care for others. So Paul has to flee Thessalonica. And, and as they're drawing into Athens, this plan begins to materialize that Timothy's going to go back. We recognize soon after he arrives in Athens that he also dispatches Silvanus. And we don't see this trio come back together again until Acts chapter 18 and verse 5, when they meet in Corinth together. And when they meet in Corinth, they begin to have these conversations about what's going on in the Thessalonian church, what needs to be done, how do they need to be ministered to, and then Paul equips Timothy to go back once again. Now look at how Paul describes Timothy in verse 2. He says, so we sent Timothy, our brother and fellow worker of God, in the gospel of Christ. Now, Timothy is probably 20, 22 at this time. And there's this sense at which they have had the experience of Paul. They have had the experience of Silvanus. And somewhere in the background, there's this young guy named Timothy. And so what Paul has to do in the middle of this is to build Timothy up in his assurity, his surety of who he is in the Lord. And so notice the first word he uses there is used in line of what it is for Christ to send someone out. And so when Paul uses this word of we gave you Timothy or, or we lent him to you, he doesn't use those things. He says we sent. And so what he's doing is he's charging him up in the understanding of what it is to be one sent by God. This word is, is meant to evoke within them equality with an office and station with Paul, and look at how he goes on to describe him. He is God's co-worker. Timothy is working. He is collaborating with God. He doesn't just say he's my co-worker. He doesn't say he's this guy and he has nothing else to do. We're so tired of him being around. He's building him up. He's saying he is God's co-worker. Now imagine what that's conveying to them. 
Timothy is there, and he is locked in these intercessory prayer meetings with the Lord, saying, what do the Thessalonians need? And from God's heart to Timothy's heart, it's being molded to be exactly what they need in that moment. And so when God is exhaling inspiration, Timothy is drawing in breath. When God is burdening his heart for the Thessalonians, Timothy feels himself coming low, overcome in empathy for someone else. This is what it means. His heart beats as the Lord's heart beats. As God draws in breath, Timothy finds himself strengthened. As the Lord sends him out, Timothy finds himself moving in the full equipping of the Spirit. There is nothing lacking in him. There's nothing diminutive in him. What we see in this is that Timothy is exactly what the Thessalonians need. And what we see behind this, some sense, is that all of us, as we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, are capable and called into this close association being God's co-worker. That's weighty. This is weighty understanding that God has someone in your work. He has someone in your neighborhood. He has someone beside you at lunch today who needs you to collaborate with God for the furtherance of the gospel in their life. Do you have a sense of that? Do you have a sense that the God who created the universe, the God who spoke all things into existence, the God who desires for all people to come and know him, has as at his disposal your life, and he has called you Dale. He has called you Robert. He has called you Verna to be his co-worker. And we get a sense of which this is incredibly overwhelming. This is incredibly overwhelming, but it's not just overwhelming. It is a distinct honor. And what are you laboring in? You are laboring in the gospel of Christ. That the gospel of Christ is making a profound difference in your life. See, it's not just that it has made a difference in your life. He has called you to salvation. But it is making a difference in your life. You are being impacted with it continually. So as God is applying the gospel to your life in increasing measure in very different experiences and difficulties and in glory, he's sending you out. The gospel of God is at work in your heart. Are you willing to allow the gospel of God, which is at work in your heart, to be at work in the lives of the people you come into contact with? Timothy was. As Paul sent Timothy out, recognizing the risk and the difficulty and the hardship he would likely face, he sent him out with the Thessalonians in mind. Look at the ministry he gives him. He says, I sent him to you to establish and to exhort you in your faith. This idea of of being established. Flip over to 1 Peter 5. Look over at 1 Peter 5. This twinfold idea, we're going to be in 1 Peter 5, 10, and then John 16, 7, just quickly, if you have multiple fingers and are very uh, manually dexterable. I don't think that's the word I want. Nope. Dexterous. Thank you. Sometimes you need an assist. Look at 5, 10. Look at 5, 10. He says, and after you have suffered for a little while, The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ 
will himself, y'all, God is at work in their lives, in our lives, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And what does this resort to? What is the outcome of this? To him be the dominion forever and ever. What Paul sends Timothy out to do is to establish them in their faith. So Timothy's not going out there and saying, all right, what we need to do here is take some 16 painted nails and, 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 and some wood glue, and we just need to work the joints. What Tim- Timothy is effectively going out and saying to them is, talk to me about what your week looks like. And they're like, well, I get up on Mondays, I go to work. He's like, okay, on, on, on that Monday when you're at work and you walk into this workplace, how could it be different that as you walk in there, you do so in the full equipping of God? Like, well, I don't understand what you mean. He says, well, listen, to be established in your faith is to live out a vibrant faith within the culture that you find yourself in. So coming to faith and living out your faith is something that looks different in each and every cultural experience that you find yourself in, each and every moment, within the relationships I'm currently engaged in. What does it look like for me to live out my faith? And so uh, Dee and I have a specific friendship. Matt and I have a specific friendship. Andy and I have a specific friendship. So what does it look like for me to live out my faith with the three of them in each of these different areas? I must be established in those things. So we come to the understanding that one of the things that he's doing there is cultural sanctification. He's growing them in holiness for what it looks like in first century Thessalonica. What does it look like them for live to live close to the heart of God where they are. These folks have not been Christians their whole lives. They've not been surrounded by Christians their whole lives. There's not generational impact for them. So what they have to come to understand is how is being a Christian in this city distinctly different from the way I used to live? And in some sense, that's the question we're asking. As as history moves on, as the West moves in an increasingly progressive direction, What does it look like to be a Christian, to be established in a world where the fastest woman swimmer today existed as a man just a couple of years ago? Like, what does it look like for us in this setting? What vocabulary do we use? How do we engage with people? How are we established in a world of transgenderism? What does that look like? Like, this was not a question we asked in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. This isn't how we were forced to live. This isn't how we were meant to engage. But if you want to engage culturally and be at all all impactful, you have to wrap your mind around what it looks like to be established today. Not established in the 50s. Not established in the 60s. What does it look like for you to be established in your faith today? And that's what he was doing. Now, the second thing he did was he came into them and he was exhorting them. Now, the awesome thing about this is he uses this word here of exhortation. It's the same, it's the verbal form of the same word that Jesus uses in John 16 and 7. John 16 and 7, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper the encourager, the comforter, the paraclete, he will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So what is John saying? John, or what is John recording and what is Paul saying here? What we find in the middle of this is that, P, is that Paul, in some sense, is calling them to rely upon the Holy Spirit. He's encouraging them to rely on the Holy Spirit. 
So in the middle of these things, and they're trying to be established, and they're trying to figure out what it looks like to work at L3 Harris in 2022, and they're struggling with this, he wants them not primarily to begin to think of what are the nuts and bolts of this thing, but what would it look like in increasing measure for me and my life to yield over control and authority and power to the Holy Spirit? What would it look like for me to be equipped with the Spirit in the midst of these difficulties? What would it look like for you in the middle of a difficult marriage, in the difficult season with your kids, what would it look like for you in a difficult season of health to yield over an increasing measure a dependency upon the Spirit? Listen, for many of us, you have tried it your way, and you're struggling. It's difficult. You find yourself tired at night, tired in the morning, depressed all day long. What is he calling us to in the middle of these things? This sense of, 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 of being undergirded by these things? It is a reliance upon the Holy Spirit. Timothy's role is to go back to them and say, listen, I know it's difficult. I know it's difficult. Don't surrender. Don't yield. And don't seek to accomplish this on your own. Trust in God. Rely upon his Spirit. One of the reasons God allows the introductions of difficulties into our life is to bring us to the end of dependency on our flesh or the flesh of those around us so that we might depend upon his spirit this is what he wants them to see there's no way for you to overcome the roman government but you can rest in his spirit while you're being oppressed there's no way to right all these ills we see within our society but there is a way to rest on his spirit as you pray for them. Now, why is it important for him to go there? Look at what he goes on and says. He says, so that no one may be moved by these afflictions. The temptation for afflictions, the temptation and difficulty that all of us seemingly encounter is that when we see them coming our way, what do we want to do? We want relief. We want to find our way out of it. So if there's some way of being, there's some manner of engaging that I find myself in, and I find difficulty coming my way, one of the things that comes into my mind is there's some different way I can be so I don't have to experience this difficulty anymore. Is there something I can change about me? Is there something I can change about my uh, experience? Is there something I can change about my present that would make these things not be this way right now? But what does Paul say? See, the picture Paul is painting there is in this position of moving. Moving is a response to the difficulty of life, but it's not a moving towards God. You see, God delights in using difficulties and affliction and suffering in your life to draw you closer to himself. The enemy, Satan, the one who hindered Paul, chapter 2, verse 18, delights in using the difficulties in your life to push you further away from God. Paul recognizes, Timothy, you've got to go back. Certainly they're facing affliction. They faced it. That's the whole reason we left. What you need to go back is to make sure they stay in position with God. And it's constant. And it requires constant vigilance. It requires constant practice. It requires constant movement on our part to stay in this position. And in that, what it takes is a reliance to allow people to care for you and to care for the people around you. In Ephesians 4.13, 
Paul has run through this whole list. He's called some to be pastors, some to be evangelists, some to be this, some to be this, some to be this. And he gets to the church and he says, for the, the reason he has called these people to these specific roles is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So this is what we see in that. This is what we come to learn in that. One of the reasons we have pastors, elders, staff members is to equip and train the laity, the congregation, that the congregation would turn and begin to minister to one another. We can never attune, we can never be enough for you, for your hurts, for your difficulties, for all the various things that you go through in life, but there are enough of you that you can turn one to another and begin to minister to one another. So husbands, your primary role and responsibility is ministering, turning towards the hurts and the difficulties in your wife. Wives, your primary role is turning towards your husbands in the difficulties of your life. Parents, your primary role together is turning towards your children in the difficulties of your life and having conversations with them early enough that they know that you are informed, that they know that you are aware, and that they know that you primarily care for their well-being and you make decisions in kind. If you are in this place and you feel alone and you feel like no one knows you, that may be real. I think that's fair to say. It may be that no one in this place actually does know you, that no one in this place actually does care anything for you because we don't actually know you. If that's been your experience, and I want to apologize for that. That's not our heart. That's not our desire. Our desire is that you would be known, that you would be cared for, and that you would be well cared for. And so if that has been your experience, find a friendly face in this room, walk over and tell them, you look like a not scary person, will you help care for me? If that sounds too overwhelming, you can email us at elders at ridgecrest.com. We'd love to connect you with someone who can walk alongside you. We have to minister one to another. And we have to be willing to be ministered to because all of us need the encouragement that comes from being mutually established and mutually encouraged to stay steadfast, to remain steadfast in the middle of these things. Now look at the hard message that we receive here in 3 through 4. Second half of 3 says, For you yourselves know that you are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction and just as, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. So they're there, and Paul is rolling out the gospel for them. He's communicating, this is what it is. God sent his son in the fullness of time. He came and he lived a perfectly sinless life, and he died at the hands of his creation. And then entering into the grave three days later, he rose again. Jesus overcame sin and death so that he might bear the penalty and the punishment for your sin and mine. And they're like, this is awesome. We love this. And Paul says, but I need you to know something. To be saved by Jesus is to be marked with Jesus. To be saved by Jesus is to be called to carry the cross of Jesus. To be saved by Jesus, to live a life aligned with Jesus, is to be willing to suffer with him. This is your life. 
that this sounds a whole lot different than what a lot of us hear. And it sounds a whole lot different than what I think a lot of us want to believe to be true. Jesus speaking to the disciples in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20 said this. He says, if the world hates you, the world despises you, if the world looks at you and it wants to see pain thrive in you, it wants to see sickness live in you. It says, know that it has hated me before it hates you. In the middle of our difficulties, in the middle of our pain and our suffering, we don't come to an impassable, we don't come to a Jesus who is unmoved by our suffering. We come to a Jesus who is acquainted with our suffering. He says, if the world hates you, know it's hated me before you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. It would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant, you, are not greater than your master, Jesus. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It's one thing for them to have this conversation about some out there suffering, some out there difficulties, some in the future possibility of misfortune. But it's when this misfortune finds its way into our lives, into our homes, when it walks up to the front door and it doesn't need to knock. It kicks open the door. It walks into the living room and it plops itself down. And that suffering becomes real. And that suffering is marital discord. That suffering is depression. That suffering is disease. That suffering is betrayal. That suffering is something that we can't even begin to articulate because the pain is overwhelming. Just know it's there. We know it's always present. And we know it seems insurmountable. That's when it becomes difficult. That's when it's moved from theoretical pain and suffering to what they experience, he says, just as you know. And we're tempted to move. We're tempted to fold, we're tempted to flee, we're tempted to bail. See, Paul knew they needed Timothy. My fear is in this room, some of you think you're okay on your own. Some of us feel like not gotten too bad, it's not gotten too hard, I can do this alone. Listen, you were never created to. You were never created to walk through this life alone. You were never saved to an individualized expression of Christianity. You were saved and entrusted and placed in the middle of a community. Will you let that community care for? Will you care for other people in that same community? Don't suffer alone. This is why Paul said Timothy, this is why he sent some of you to minister to the needs of others. This is why he sent some of us to have needs that need to be ministered to by yet others. Paul had said, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. Look at how he ends. 
He says, for fear that somehow the tempter, the one who had hindered Paul coming in chapter 2, verse 18, that somehow Satan, the Lucifer, the deceiver, the accuser, the slanderer, the enemy of God, the defeated foe of God, somehow he had worked to tempt you. And our labor would be in vain. Now, what's Paul saying there? Paul's greatest fear was that somehow the enemy that he knew was at work in their midst, he knew was stirring them up, turning them against one another, leading them to engage in gossip, leading them to engage in slander, leading them to engage in doubt of God and who he is and in his goodness, that somehow he, in his work, in their place, would lead them down this path. And the path looks something like this. Is God really good? He wants them to doubt God's character in the midst of difficulty. Is God really good? Does he even care? And from an assault of God's character, he begins to move to an assault of who you are in him. So he begins to rage a war on who you are in him. And following in line with Jesus' rebuttal, his engagement, his defeat of Satan in the temptation, we follow in line of that and we match his accusations with Scripture. So he says, listen, you're not really a Christian. If you were a Christian, you wouldn't act like this. You're not really a Christian. Probably should just get really earnest and pray again and again and again that he'd save you. That's probably what you need to do. You're a disappointment. He wants nothing to do with you. Look at what Paul said in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Speaking of Jesus, he says, In Jesus you also, when you heard the word of truth, when you heard the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Does this sound like something you have to do? Does this sound like something you have to keep? It's this enduring promise that in that moment when you recognize that you were all debt, that you were all folly, that you were all deadness, that you were all waywardness, that you were a liability to him, he sealed. This is why Paul has this such incredibly powerfully, incredibly powerful and profound statement. It says, when we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, in that moment, in our deadness, we were saved. God didn't wait for your hearts to be enlivened. He didn't wait for you to be moving towards him. He saved you in your deadness. You've been sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit. He is our guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the, to the praise of his glory. How long will God save you? Until his coming. How much has he saved you? To the uttermost. First Peter says it this way, we have an inheritance in him that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being kept safe. When the enemy can't lead you to doubt God's character, he leads you to believe and to doubt who you are in him. He leads you to distort the response you should have to him. Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians in chapter seven, 
You're not doubting God's character. You're not doubting who you are in him. But you recognize in the middle of these things, I have sinned. And this is the experience of all Christians. We will all sin. Some of us are currently sinning. The enemy knows of our sin. He knows of our waywardness. And so he comes to us in the middle of our sin, and he tells us that how we need to respond, how we need to feel about our sin, and the word he uses is shame. You need to be so incredibly broken and brought low. You need to be so incredibly devastated because you are a sinner. You are a shame bearer. You are worthless. You are an embarrassment. And that's where you need to stay. Your name sullies. Your name defiles the good name of Christ. If everyone knew who you were and what you were doing, they would want nothing to do with you. Paul, addressing this in 2 Corinthians 7.10, gives us the opposite perspective first. He says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas, where the enemy longs to see you stay, what he uses to dispel out shame is a worldly grief that produces death. Some of us today, we have the experience of death and no experience of life. You are broken over your sin but you are stuck in your shame. Be it pornography, be it adultery, be it deceit, be it theft, be it hard-heartedness, defiance, whatever sin it is, the enemy longs to keep you in that experience of shame. And when you begin to tell yourself it's not so bad, it's not really a big deal, he reminds you of the guilt that is yours to keep you feeling broken and low. See, God doesn't do that. God introduces sorrow into your life so that you might be found to be once again in unison with him, so that you might once again experience what it is to be forgiven, to be restored, to be renewed, saying to you, I have established you. I have saved you to the uttermost. You are still my child. Jesus washes the disciples' feet, John 13. He's got them there, and they're in this moment. He's preparing their hearts for what it's going to look like for him to leave. And he's telling Peter of his betrayal. He's setting them up to experience what it's going to be like when Judas turns his back. And Peter's like, I'll never forsake you. Like, all of these others may flee. I know I had that brief moment that wasn't great when you said, get behind me, Satan, but I'm over that. Nothing like that's ever going to happen again. Now, Luke, Jesus speaks to Peter and says, when you've turned once more, come back because your brothers are going to need you. So he tells Peter there's, a, Peter there's a plan and a purpose for him after his failure. Peter still won't believe it. Now, what happens? Peter is three times posed with the question, do you know this man? Do you know this Jesus? Over a short period of time, in each opportunity Peter is given to display faithfulness, he blows it. There's no hiding. Every time Peter's given an opportunity to stand for Jesus, he shakes it off and pushes it away. So at the third failure, the rooster crows, Peter is broken because he knows everything Jesus said was going to come true has come true. He is a failure. 
He's enveloped by shame. He feels lost. He's betrayed Jesus. What is he going to do? See, it's not enough for Jesus, for Peter to experience forgiveness without experiencing a closeness to the heart of Jesus. This is why in John 21, we get a picture for each one of the failures for the denial. Jesus comes back to Peter again. Picking up in verse 15, it says, When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than me? Pointing to the disciples. He says, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He says to him, Tend my sheep. How many times did he deny him? Three. So he asked him one more time. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. He was grieved. His heart recognized what Jesus was doing before his mind kept up with it. Do you love me? Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus says again, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. What Jesus wants many of us to hear in this place is that you are free. He wants you to be established. He wants you to be encouraged. And he wants you to go out and to be an encourager yet still to others. So that they might be emboldened. That they might be restored to go out and to live faithfully. But let me just take a minute. Let me just take a moment. If you are in this place, you know that you have given your life to Jesus. But you see behind you this trail of unfaithfulness. You see behind you the debris of sin. And you feel in this moment that somehow this message does not apply to you. That somehow the truth of this is not enough for you. Can you hear right now that God loves you? And can you contrast right now within your heart and within the stillness of who you are the lie of the enemy that says live in shame and the lie of the God who says come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you. My entreaty for you in this moment is in just a minute we're going to turn and we're going to have an opportunity to pray together that if where you are in this place is that you don't feel worthy and you don't feel like you can come, bow your head, ask the person beside you to pray with you. God loves you. He wants to care for your heart, for your wounds. He wants to see you restored. The enemy wants nothing more than to keep you on the sideline. Come to the one who cares. Let me pray for us. God, as we enter into a time of invitation response, we pray for those who are in this place. But as they hear these conversations of what it looks like to serve, what it looks like to encourage, to be established, to move, they, they have no place for understanding this. They've never named the name Jesus. They've never submitted themselves before you. God, that today would be the day of their salvation. And so we pray towards that end for those who do not know you. 
God, I pray for our brothers and sisters today who need a word of encouragement, not a word of absolution, but God, a word that says, humble your hearts before me, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is made for you. My life surrendered for you. Come and be cared for. Come and find rest. God, we pray these things. And we ask your spirit to move and to stir in our hearts in this place. In Christ's name, amen.